HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The following program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. You may have noticed that one Whole Foods Market store is not like the other. We're proud that each of our stores has its own quirks, a direct connection to the surrounding community, and buys and sells their own products. Whether it's artisanal chocolates exclusive to Bowery, small batch pickles in Chelsea, or a featured craft beer on tap at West 97th, you'll find that each store is a little bit different than the next. With six Manhattan locations, Whole Foods Market offers a taste of every neighborhood. Come see us in Tribeca, Bowery, Union Square, Chelsea, Columbus Circle, or the Upper West Side. Open seven days a week from 8 a.m. to 11 p.m. For more information, visit www.wholefoodsmarket.com. Okay, it's Thursday, and you are turned into the Heritage Radio Network, uh, coming to you live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and you're listening to The Farm Report. We are here today in studio and on the line with Chris Major. Chris, how are you there? Yeah, I'm here. How you doing? I'm doing good. Awesome. I'm so excited to have you on today. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you. Um, so, full disclosure, um, Chris, Chris is... Uh, God, what's the history here? Uh, I used to cook at Savoy with a wonderful woman, my sous chef, Jackie McMullen, moved uh, up to Vinyl Haven, Maine, to spend a, a summer running a restaurant and fell madly in love with a local fisherman, yours truly, Chris Major. And uh, years later, they're married, and now we have them on the line to give us the what's what in the lobster world. So, Chris, um, you're not in Maine right now, right? No, I'm in Vermont right now. Well, what the heck? Are there lobster in Vermont? Uh, no, there's not lobster in Vermont. Uh, this is my off-season, and I come up to Vermont to work on a dairy farm for a couple months in the winter. What? <laughs> That's awesome. So, yeah, um, not too bad. Why don't, you, why don't you just kind of take us through, like, uh, kind of quickly, and then we'll go back a little bit more in depth, a year in the life of a lobster fisherman. All right. Um, my season starts... Uh, the first of April. Not that there's an off season for lobstering. We just choose to take the winter off. Because um, it's get, cold. <laughs> it's cold and rough, and you just don't want to be out there in the winter. It's a lot warmer in the barn milking cows. Okay. Um. And uh, we set our gear out, and you know we just pretty much run the season. We chase the lobsters uh, down the bay and then back out again, and 
and we take them up at the end of the year, and I usually come to Vermont. Okay, that was a brief overview. Awesome. <laughs> so first of April, you're setting your gear out. What what does that mean? What what's the gear? Where do you set it? Kind of what what's the process of of getting getting set for the season? Well, pretty much we load up the boat with uh, traps and buoys and rope, and we head out to the, the fishing grounds, and uh, we set our traps out where uh, where the captain feels they need to be. And are there rules about where you can put the traps? Um, there are zones where you can fish for different areas, and then there's, uh, like, uh, respected uh, grounds for each island. That's not an actual law, but the guys respect the the line, so you can only fish in your respected waters. Okay, so you you're, you guys are um, launching off of Vinyl Haven, Maine. Yeah. Is that a pretty big lobstering area? Uh, actually, it's, it's Penobscot Bay, and it, 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 they land uh, the most lobsters on the coast of Maine out of Penobscot Bay. Oh, wow. Yep. So are you guys on, a, like, a giant boat? Like, is it you and a bunch of dudes, or what's, what's the crew look like? It's a uh, 36-foot fiberglass boat, and uh, it's just me and the captain. Uh, a lot of boats have three-man crew, but we choose to go two-handed. It pays out better for the, for the boat if you have less people. Yeah, I'm no math whiz, but I know if you divide something by two or three, the numbers are a little different. Yeah. Um, so what is your role on the boat? What, how is it different from the captain's role? Uh, the captain, you know, drives the boat and decides where he wants to put the traps and when he wants to move them and when he wants to haul them up and pick them and rebate them. My job is to uh, pick the traps, go through, sort out the lobsters, throw over the bad ones, keep the good ones, put new bait in the traps, stack them on the boat, and then uh, ban the lobsters. And then I set them back where he tells me to set them. Okay, so the captain is steering the boat and kind of making the decisions about where to where to drop and when to pick up. Can you give us a sense of scale, like how many how many traps are out in the water at a time and how often do you pick up the traps and what's the distance roughly that you're traveling in a day? Um, it depends on the time of year for how far we're traveling. In the, in the springtime when we set out, we go out to deep water because the lobster's in the deep water, but when they come into the shore to shed, we shorten up our gear and bring it around the shore. And um, and then, like, uh, how many uh, traps are you roughly? Oh, okay, I forgot where. What else sorry, you sorry I see like four questions at once. Um, we fish 800 traps, which is the legal limit. Uh, we haul between 270 and 300 a day, and if there are lots of lobsters going, we haul them every three days. And if there's not that many going, we do every th- four or five days. And. In Maine, is there, like, when you turn on the radio in the morning, does it, does it tell you, like, it's going to be a good lobster day or it's going to be a bad lobster day or you don't really know till you're out on the water? And that's why they call it fishing and not catching. You really, <laughs> you really never know what you're going to do till you go out and do it, and you've got to take the good days with the bad days. As a, when we're setting out traps in the springtime, we actually go in the hole. We actually lose money doing that because we're not pulling anything out of the traps at that point in time, and we're putting bait into them, and we've done repairs and put new rope on them, so it actually costs money to, to put your traps out. So there are days where I go out and I, and I lose money. And how does that work? You, you and the captain divide, divide the money up um, just kind of based on a share? Are you, do you co-own the boat, or? 
I don't co-own the boat. I, I'm just the hired help. Um, the captain owns the boat, the traps, all the gear, and pays for the maintenance. My, you know, I just show up in the back of the boat and do my job, and I get a percentage of the catch, and I pay a percentage of the, the bait. Some guys pay a percentage of bait and fuel, but as far as all the maintenance, that's, that's usually on the captain. On the captain. And do you need, like, a special permit to fish lobster? Yeah, um, you need a lot. You definitely need a lobster license. Yeah. So, and, go ahead. And uh, the island that I live on, if you weren't born and raised there, you can't fish there. It's a, it's a birthright. So even if I went out and got a license, I wasn't born and raised raised there, so I couldn't get a boat and fish traps. Just that, like it's a little territorial, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. So how did you get into lobster fishing if you're not from Vinyl Haven? Um, my dad knew someone out there, and I was looking for a change and. I've always kind of wanted to work on the water, and an opportunity arose, and I packed up my stuff and moved to Maine. How many seasons have you been fishing? Oh, I moved out there September of '01, so nine years, ten years. Wow, that's awesome! And have you seen a lot of change over the like the ten years that you've been there? I mean, does it really vary from year to year, or is it is it kind of within the same range? It's definitely different every year. I've been on five or six different boats. Um, not, o- not only does the lobstering change every year, but not every captain catches the same. You have your captains that catch more than others. You know, there's a lot of science behind knowing where the lobsters are. And it- lobsters go through cycles, too, a seven-year life cycle. So every seven years, the lobsters peter off a little bit. And then after, again, they start picking back up. Okay, so there, there's a... a, 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 a the boat that you fish on, that's kind of typical typical size. You said most crews are are three people, not two. Yep. And and so there's a bunch of different people like out on the water fishing lobster. And so everyone's out there in April kind of setting their traps, getting ready to go. Talk a little bit about the bait. What what does that consist of? Um, there's many different types of bait. It's all pretty nasty. Uh sometimes we use herring which is good because it supports the local community because other guys in the community go out and catch the herring and then sell it to us. We mostly use uh, hard bait, which is frozen bait that's shipped in, which is uh, frozen racks of fish where they took the fillets off. Instead of throwing the rack away, they sell it to us, and we use that for bait. So the rack, that's kind of like the head and the tail and the spine, everything but the fillet. Everything but the fillet. Usually the guts are in there still. Some fancy knife work. Yeah, nice stuff. <laughs> so you're you're loading up the traps with the bait. You drop them in the water. You come back in a few days and you pick them up. So what happens to the lobster? You know, it's on your boat, and then do you guys like sell it to someone, or how does that work? Um, there's stations in the harbor where we leave from that sell us bait and fuel, and in turn, we sell them our catch. Um, we sell to a fisherman's co-op. Okay, and that's like co-op in the traditional sense where it's, it's owned by... It's the- owned by the fishermen, yeah, and we, uh, we have meetings throughout the year and vote on, vote on what goes on there and go through the yearly planning and stuff. So we, we've talked a little bit, I mean, in the past, you and I have talked about lobstering in Maine and the the kind of 
work that goes into making it a sustainable fishing environment. Can you tell us a little bit about about that? Um, yeah, they're very strict on um, on what you can keep for lobsters. We actually throw away seventy five throw back seventy five percent of the lobsters we catch. Wow. There is a certain size they have to be. They can't be under that size. They can't be over that size. Um, if it's an egg-bearing female, we can't keep an egg-bearing female. We have to mark it so that everyone knows that it's a breeder, and we have to throw it back in the water, and it's illegal to to keep that. And the penalty is losing your license if you get caught with a, with a, an illegal lobster aboard your boat. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. How do you mark the How do you mark the ladies? It's the second tail fin over from the right, and we have a V punch, and we just punch a V in the tail. So then, when you when you pull up and you know, say you pull the lobster onto the board, on board, and and she's not, you know, ha- doesn't have eggs, but you can see by looking at her tail that that she's no good to keep. So you yeah. literally look at every single lobster that comes onto your boat. Um, when a lobster comes onto the boat, first thing I do is sex the lobster and see if it's male or female. And if it's female, I look at the tail to make sure it hasn't been, been notched before, make sure it has no eggs, and then I measure it to make sure it's of size. Wow, so they're getting a lot of attention. Yeah, they get, I, I look over every lobster that comes aboard that boat and pretty thoroughly, sometimes twice. The, the size measurement, I mean, what, like what's, the, what's the thinking behind the size? Does that indicate an age or? Um, it does indicate an age. A lobster, they say, has to it takes seven years for a lobster to reach a pound and a quarter, which is the average size of a, a keeper lobster. So, I'm sorry, what was that again? Well, so the, the, the size just kind of indicates that it's around seven years. Around seven years less. old, yeah. And it's a pound and a quarter is like like a seven-year lobster. So what about like the jumbo lobsters that I see you know, on the Red Lobster commercials, where are those coming from? Um, they're, they're not coming from Maine. They're coming from Massachusetts and New Hampshire. We can't keep the big lobster. We, we've set a law to, to, to protect those lobsters because those are the breeders. The bigger the lobster, the more babies they can produce, which is why we have a thriving lobstering industry. And is that different than those other areas? Um, their areas are starting to get shut down now. Their catches are, are dwindling every year. I'm pretty sure that south of Cape Cod was either talking about or shutting down their lobstering industry um, early last spring. So, yeah, their, their practices are showing, showing that it's not sustainable for them, which is really horrible because that, same, that could be a lobster we threw back and it could have crawled down there, and the work we've done to... To save that lobster is just gone as soon as it crawls into Massachusetts or New Hampshire water. Sure. I mean, I think that's like the crazy thing about, about fishing is there's no, you know, there's no real borders there. The fish or the lobsters, whatever, is moving around. Yeah, um, well, there's a line there, but only on the map. Right. Are you pull like, is there anything else coming up in your traps aside from lobster? Um, we get a couple different types of crabs. We have ground fish that come up in them every once in a while, starfish. Um, hermit crabs, sea cucumbers, sea anemones, scallops, anything that dwells on the bottom, eventually you'll catch it in the trap if you do it long enough. Yeah. And yep. do, you, do you sell any of that other stuff? Um, we sell crabs, but there's not really much of a market for them. So we don't pay too much attention, for, uh, 
to them unless we're not catching a lot of lobster. And then we, we start saving crabs just to make up the difference. To make a little money. If we're on the lobster, we don't really bother with anything else in the traps. Got it. Cool. Well, we're going to take a quick bit break and when we come back we will continue our lobster talk all right starting in my heart reaching a fever pitch and it's bringing me out the dark finally i can see you crystal clear go ahead and sell me out and i'll lay your ship bay see i'll leave with every piece of you don't underestimate the things that i will do Bringing me out the dark The scars of your love remind me of us They keep me thinking that we almost had it all The scars of your love, they leave me breathless I can't help feeling We could have had it Following is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Tune in to Hot Grease every Monday at 3.30 p.m. Hot Grease strives to bring sustainability, localized sourcing, and other forward-thinking schools of culinary thought to the minds and kitchens of everyday folk. Each week, Nicole Taylor's conversations cover the entire spectrum of food enthusiasts, from internationally renowned culinary masters to moms on a budget looking to impress their tiniest critics. Again, that's every Monday at 3.30 p.m. Hot Grease on the Heritage Radio Network. All right, we are back. You're listening to the Farm Report uh, here on the Heritage Radio Network. We are on the line with Chris Major. Chris, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Awesome. Talking lobster. Yep. So I want to back up a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit about about Vinyl Haven and kind of what the the lobstering community looks like there? Um, I mean, is is it a big island? Is it a small island? Um, it's the island's fifteen miles off the coast of Rockland in the center of Penobscot Bay. It's five mi- seven miles by fifteen miles. It's and uh, it populates about fifteen hundred in the winter time and about five thousand due to tourism in the summer. Okay, and so most of the people who are there year-round have kind of been on the island for generations, is that fair to say? Or? Yep, yep, there are definitely uh, strong family roots there that are definitely uh, very obvious and prevalent in the fishing. That My captain has four or five generations of his family fishing on the water right now. Oh, wow. Which is pretty impressive. Wow. So, so lobstering, that's something, I mean, people have been been fishing lobster pretty much as long as they've been in Maine, right? Uh, I believe so, yeah. And, go ahead. Oh, the island started as a granite, and then as the, the granite industry dwindled, they picked up fishing, and it eventually became lobstering. From what I understand, back in the, the 70s and early 80s and 60s, there wasn't any money to be made in, in lobstering. It was a very humble line of work. It, it's come a long ways in the past 15, 20 years. Yeah, I'd say lobster, you know, when you think about lobster, it really has this connotation of, 
I think two things. I mean, if you're from the Midwest like me, lobster means you are fancy pants. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also, I think growing up on the East Coast, there, there, there's there's kind of a culture built up around eating eating shellfish, and it's more um, like a food of the people. I mean, where 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 do you think it exists in reality? I mean, is it a luxury food or is it a food of the people? Where, where I live? Yeah. Well, I mean, if it's it's cheaper to feed your family lobster than it is hot dogs if you're broke. I mean, it's it's a staple food for people there. A lot of people live off what comes up in their traps. Um, so for people that live on the island, it's not really a luxury food. A lot of times, it's a way of living. How does the price for lobster get set? Like, how do how do you guys? I mean, get paid. Um, how, how it's set, I would imagine is market, but as far as how we get paid, um, we get paid through the co-op where we sell our lobsters to, and they sell to a distributor. And usually the distributors, I'm pretty sure, are the ones that are setting the price. Okay. And, and so it's based on kind of market, market demand. Cause I mean, the, the price fluctuates a bit from year to year. I mean, is that a supply demand issue or... Do you have a sense? I believe, like, it's low now. It's on the uprise over the past two years, but we were down to $2 a pound three and a half years ago, four years ago, and I'm pretty sure it had to do with the economy crashing and uh, people not wanting to spend money. Spending so, the lobster. So we were catching lots of lobsters, and no one wanted to buy them, so the price went down. And you had mentioned, um, you know, shedders earlier. Can you talk a little bit about what, what a shedder lobster is? Well, Is that the right set, way to say that? Yeah. When we set out in the springtime, we're catching hard shell lobsters, which um, were last year's shedders. Over the winter, they harden up, but the, the lobsters that come in the springtime are hard. And they come from the deeper water to the shore where the water is warmer to shed, and they molt their shell. And when their new shell grows back, at first it's, it's like jelly, and then it you know, hards it up, crisp, crisp up like a potato chip a little bit. And that's what you would call a shatter lobster. And do you get a different price for those than the hard shells? Yeah, we get, it's usually a dollar twenty-five to a dollar fifty less for the fact that they don't really ship well because they're weak and don't have very high protein levels in them. And that, I mean, that's the thing we haven't mentioned at all is the lobsters are pretty much alive until, until they're getting consumed or processed. So you, you have to be pretty, you know, you have to take care of them throughout the, the, you know, bringing them in off the water and, and processing them and shipping them the, the whole time, right? Mm-hmm. We're pretty, we're pretty easy with them, definitely, especially when they're shedders. Their claws break off and legs, and you have to be gentle with them. And the one, there's the one-legged lobster, I'm assuming you get, don't get as good of a price for it. Um, we don't, we have selects and, and run. A run is a pound and a quarter to... Uh, two pounds, and I think anything over two and a half pounds is a select. I'm not really sure on those. But uh, as far as one claws or, or bat, battered up, they all get put in the same crate and sold at the same price. Once they get to the distributors, they'll go through them, and they'll sell the, the ones with no claws or one claw for less money and get more money for the prime lobsters. We don't, we don't call through them. Okay, okay. But I'm, I'm, I'm guessing if you were consistently sending something with, like, one claw, they would give you a call and be like, what are you guys doing with the other claw? 
I, I guess. I mean, I haven't, <laughs> I haven't heard a complaint. Like, you know, in the springtime, you get a lot of stuff like that because you're, you're pretty much getting what didn't crawl in the traps last year. Okay. So in the spring, you don't get a lot of lobsters, and once they shed, they gain a third of their size. Okay. So pretty much you're catching all the lobsters you threw back from the year before that were too small. Okay. And once the lobsters shed, you have a big blast of lobsters again, and you have a lot of lobsters as they're crawling back down out the bay. So when you're like in the, what would you say is like the the high points of your season where, you know, I mean, are you out fishing every day? Do you take a day off? What's your work week look like? Well, like I said, um, depending on what the lobsters are doing. In the springtime, there's not a lot of lobsters moving around, so we usually go every five days. We'll go and then we'll work for three days, take two days off, work for three days, take two days off, so it's a five-day cycle. In the spring, when the lobsters shed and there's lots of lobsters and you can haul your traps on three nights, we'll haul every day, um, weather permitting. I've done 27 days in a row before. Whew. Um, I don't like to do it, but we do do it. <laughs> I mean, you got you have to get while well, the getting's good. I think the expression goes. And <laughs> I take uh, two months off in the winter, so I, we go pretty hard and try to make enough so we don't have to work very hard in the winter. Got it. So you, um, what time? Like, what's the time? Like, when are you get up in the morning? Is it an early morning, late afternoon? I usually get up at four o'clock in the morning. We go. We go out on the boat at 5. In the spring and summer, I'm usually home pretty early, um, usually around one thirty two in the spring. In the summer, after we've brought all our traps in close to home around the shore, we're hauling a lot less rope, and it's closer to home. A lot of days I'm home and showered by noontime. And then in the fall, when the days get short and the weather gets bad, I've got days when I'm out there till 6 o'clock at night. Yuck. So my days vary with the, with the, the light season. and the weather. Okay. Um, you had mentioned so one, one of the tasks when you bring the lobsters on board is banding. What are you, what are you banding them for? Um, we band their claws so mainly so they don't destroy each other in the process of uh, shipping wherever they need to go. And, the, I mean, how do you know, like... I know it, that Maine has kind of a reputation. Maine lobster are kind of synonymous. I mean, where else in the world do do people fish for lobster? Kind of all over the world. How how does how do I know I'm getting a Maine lobster if I'm eating at a eating at a restaurant? You know, not in Maine. If you're a lobster, there's no way to tell exactly if it's a Maine lobster. But if your lobster doesn't have a band on it that said "Product of the USA." then it's not a lobster from, it's not an east northeast coast lobster. It's either coming from Canada or somewhere else. Okay, so, that, so you have to be able to check, check in the band as a way to know you're getting it made in the U.S. Yeah, and, you know, it'll either be Maine, New Hampshire, or Massachusetts. But they, they talked about branding their product with the Maine stamp, but it, it didn't work for some reason. I don't know why. Okay, um... What about, so I, I read an article a few years ago about the woman who owns L.L. Bean getting involved in the lobster trade. Do you know anything about that? Um, I, I know a little bit about it. I know who the, the woman is, yeah. What is she, what is she doing up there? Do you, can you talk about it a bit? Um, she is buying up the lobster industry and all, all ends of it, from what I understand. She owns 
boats. She owns buying stations where they buy and sell bait. She owns part of the shipping industry of it. Um, yeah, she's got her hands. I think she owns like 1% of the lobstering industry. Okay, so it's kind of looking at a more consolidated model because it sounds like from what you said earlier that that lobstering is a pretty independent business. You have the the fishermen who own their own boats and are you know part owners in the in the plant that sells them their bait and their fuel and that that then buys their lobster. Um, so kind of at the source, things are pretty pretty grassroots independent. Yeah, and like from my opinion. From what I've seen in all all uh, farming, when you start sourcing outside products and stuff like that, little p- bits and pieces of the industry start falling falling out and don't fit together the way they should anymore. Right, um, it's kind of a, a, a close circle of sustainability. Yeah, everything works symbiotically, and when you start changing those things, it, it tends to mess things up. Well. Um, we have a few minutes left. I kind of wanted to talk a bit about eating lobster. I mean, is there a preferred way that Mainers recommend cooking lobster? Um, I personally don't eat lobster, which might be a shock. What? Yeah, but I've cooked plenty of them. And the one thing you don't want to do in front of a Mainer is fill your pot up all the way to the top with water and start boiling the water. Uh, the, the right way is to steam it. Put an inch or two of water in the bottom and get that boiling and put your lobsters in. You want to take, I've heard you want to take the bands off before you boil it. And hope it doesn't nip you. Yeah, hope it doesn't bite you. You steam it till uh, it turns red, and if you pick it up by its antenna Mm -hmm. and give it a little shake, if the antenna falls off at the head, then it's done. Usually about seven to ten minutes, depending on how many lobsters you have in the pot. And do they really scream? <laughs> I think it's just more of a hiss, more than a scream. <laughs> I, <don't laughs> I just remember reading stories about that when I was a kid in the Midwest. I'm like, who are these crazy people cooking live fish in a pot of boiling water? Yeah. But that's yeah, not- yeah it, it actually turns a lot of people off, and some grocery stores have stopped selling them because uh, it's inhumane to, to boil an animal alive. Well, uh, I think if we painted a picture of what else was going on. Well, in, uh, I mean, it all starts somewhere. somewhere yeah. You know, they all, any meat you eat dies somewhere along the line. That is that is true. Well, Chris, thank you so much for taking some time out of the barn today to chat with us about your other life as a lobster fisherman. Or I guess this is your other life as a dairyman. Um, <laughs> it was great, and we hope to have you on the show again when you're in season and kind of give us an update on what's going down up in Maine. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. The following is a public service announcement from Heritage Foods USA. 
In late March, Dan, Andrea, Patrick, and the Heritage team are traveling to the coldest reaches of the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont to help the Cantor family tap sugar maple trees. Then the maple sap will flow down to the sugar house where it is boiled gently over a wood fire just as it has been for generations. Just a few days later, this grade A amber syrup will be poured into the beautiful glass jugs and sent to you for pancakes, waffles, desserts, glazing hams, or just drinking by the spoonful. There's only a limited supply, so order today. Each one-liter bottle is $45, including delivery. Delivery will be at the end of March, and we will notify you of the exact shipping date. Each shipment will include a CD explaining the whole process. You can also follow us on YouTube while we work and bottle. In the meantime, you can head over to the Heritage Radio Network archives and listen to Linda Palaccio talk about maple syrup on her show, A Taste of the Past, Episode 12. For more information, visit www.heritagefoodsusa.com. The following is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Join wine impresarios Aaron Fitzpatrick and Brian DeMarco as they dish out on the latest industry news with winemakers and tastemakers on Heritage Radio Network's revamped wine show, Unfiltered. Aaron Fitzpatrick, one of the first hosts on HRN with her program at the root of it, amps up the volume and unfiltered content with co-host Brian DeMarco in this 2011 Redux. True to the original format, Aaron and Brian will keep you abreast of current happenings and break down the news and global events, distilling complex into anecdotal stories that inspire. From media and political events to hailstorms in Argentina, no topic is out of bounds. Tune in every week to hear them chat up the industry's biggest personalities and host on-air tastings with visiting vintners and the country's hottest sommeliers. Whether you're an expert or an enthusiast, Unfiltered demystifies wine and lets you know what it really takes to get a bottle from the vineyard to your neighborhood wine shop. Unfiltered broadcasts live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. on Heritage Radio Network. The following is a public service announcement from the Museum of Food and Drink. Dave Arnold and Patrick Martins have gathered a team of New York's most innovative chefs and bartenders to create a nine-course fundraiser lunch at Del Posto, Sunday, March 27th. Their intent to kickstart the greatest food museum in the world. The menu for this unprecedented event is derived from educational themes of the museum. Chefs will draw inspiration from sources outside their normal sphere. How will a cutting-edge chef handle the Paleolithic, or a dish only using pre-Columbian ingredients? What will a modern Italian chef do with ancient Rome? The chefs include David Chang of Omofuku, Wiley Dufresne of WD50, Mark Ladner of Del Posto, Nils Noren of the French Culinary Institute, Cesare Casella of Salumeria Rossi, Carlo Maracci of Roberta's, Brooks Headley of Del Posto, and Christina Tozzi of Momofuku Milk Bar. Bartenders include Audrey Sanders of Pegu Club, Thomas Waugh of Death & Company, Simon Ford of Pernod Ricard, Damon Bolte of Prime Meats, and Eben Clem of BR Guest Restaurants. Proceeds from the event will directly support the Museum of Food and Drink. Tickets are very limited and $250 per person. To purchase tickets, please visit mofad.eventbrite.com. That's M-O-F-A-D dot eventbrite.com. Once again, M-O-F-A-D dot E-V-E-N-T-B-R-I-T-E dot com. Sponsored by Pernod Ricard, Heritage Foods USA, Pat LaFrieda Meats, Barterhouse Wines, Del Posto Restaurant. <laughs> 